So I'd like to introduce our captain, who is the president of the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals, Suzanne Lofton. Thank you, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I think we need more coffee, Keith. Let's try that one again. Good morning. As you just heard, you're going to want to stay awake and be awake for today. You heard Keith talking about some of our great presenters. I want to start with uh, thanking all of y'all for coming. This is our 42nd uh, Texas Association of Addiction Professionals Conference, and I'm honored to be the president for the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals and be a part of this great conference. On behalf of the TAP board, the conference committees, and all the volunteers, I want to thank you, you for being here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Every year the conference gets bigger and better, and that's because you keep coming and because of our wonderful exhibitors and sponsors that make it successful. Before we get started, I want to thank our committee. They work tirelessly putting this together. They're, they're the ones in the hats. If you see one, thank them for, for putting the conference together and for the hard work that they've put in to make it successful. Our sponsors and exhibitors, please go by their booths. We can offer this conference at a cheaper price, a reasonable price, because they are the ones who pay the money to get the booths, and that helps lower your cost for attending this. And you get to eat. They're the ones who sponsors all the food, as you heard Keith say. Uh, <clears throat> so raise your hand if you are a TAP member. Whoa, look at that. All right. Okay, so at this conference only, this conference only, not in two weeks, this conference only. You have an opportunity to become a member if you pay for a full conference. Go to the TAP booth and talk to them, sign up to be a member, and uh, you can get the conference for, I mean, you can get your membership for $95. I want to thank all of you for continuing, who are TAP members, to continuing renewing your membership and supporting TAP. Uh, later on, you will hear at our town hall meeting what that money goes to, our legislative advocacy, and some of the things that we do to help this profession and to help you as individual counselors in the field. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We have our board who are selling raffle tickets. Raise your hand if you are selling raffle tickets. Beth Foster is one of them. Well, Beth Foster is the only one in here. But we have several of them selling raffle tickets. Jamie's over there. How did I miss Jamie? Because she's sitting down. It includes Ranger tickets, a mini iPad, cowboy tickets, a $100 gift card, and my favorite that I hope to win is the Caribbean Cruise. Five for, it's $5 a piece. Beth, $5 a piece. And $5 a piece or five for $20? Five a piece or five for $20? <clears throat> And she says she's selling the winning ticket. No, I haven't bought mine yet. Nova Recovery Center brings you the annual TAP Awards Luncheon featuring our keynote speaker, Daniel Baldwin, sponsored by Soba Recovery. Later that afternoon, keynote TAP representatives will share current events in our profession in the annual town hall meeting, followed by the sober comedian Mark London, who will also feature... Uh, live, uh, excuse me, let me start that one over, who will be featured live on the Lido deck, sponsored by the Burning Tree, 
we'll have refreshments courtesy of Springboard Center. Please uh, stop by and visit with the Recovery Coast to Coast Broadcasting booth. See Neil Scott. I'm not sure he's in here, who returns again to our conference this year. He, it was so wonderful to have him last year, and he's returned. Thanks to Summer Sky for sponsoring him. Lastly, please visit, I've already talked to you about our exhibitors and sponsors during your breaks, uh, and leave your gift cards. A lot of them are giving away uh, prizes, so put your, your, gift, uh, your uh, business card in their, at their table, drop it, and then at the luncheon, we're going to be giving those prizes away. Uh, we will let you know who won those prizes. Special thanks to this year's top sponsors, especially the premier conference sponsor, Nova Recovery Center. And at this time, I would like to bring up Julie Lloyd Atkinson, the San Antonio president for the, uh, excuse me, the president for the San Antonio chapter. Good morning, everyone. Y'all know my name, Julie, and I am from San Antonio, the current TAP president, and I am honored to have my District 116 state representative-elect come here to read the governorial proclamation. I think I said that right. Uh, this is Diana Arevalo. She is the executive, executive director of the Network for Young Artists here in San Antonio. She studied management at Our Lady of the Lake, University, she's gone to UTSA and Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. She is a representative-elect for my district, which is 116. That's also the medical center. So, you know, we've got University Hospital, we've got Baptist, we've got Methodist, we've got all the hospitals right in that district. And they, don't, they serve Bear County and like eight other surrounding counties and whoever else needs them. So one of the things that I admire about Diane is I met her when she was having, starting on her listening tour, she's doing a healthcare listening tour. And I met her um, over at the San Antonio Council on Alcohol and Drug Abuse. She came to talk, and I'm, I am a coalition member there, working on excise tax. And she came and listened to me talk about that and listened to them talk about some of our other concerns. And she is active, I mean, she's really taken what we're saying to heart. And when I met her there, I talked to her about this conference, and. I was so honored when she said yes that she would come and and speak to us and, and read the proclamation for us. So I'd like to introduce my representative-elect, Diana Arevalo. Thank you so much. Good morning. First, I'd like to begin by saying thank you. Thank you for your chosen profession and thank you for doing what you do to help everyone across the state of Texas and from all over America for working in health care. You know, when I got elected in March, I didn't expect or intend to launch a listening tour in our healthcare industry. As we know, it covers various topics. But as I started, and I started meeting with hospitals and advocacy organizations, I realized that in Bear County, we don't have that one advocate who can champion our issues. I look forward to this legislative session to being that point person and to advancing not only the mission of this organization, but the mission of everyone who is serviced through the healthcare industry, whether it's in mental health, substance abuse, addiction recovery, or working on any other issue that pertain to our community and our residents. 
So thank you for allowing me to be here with all of you today. And I'd like to go ahead and read uh, this wonderful proclamation from the governor of Texas. It says, To all to whom these presents shall come, greetings. Know ye that this official recognition is presented to all observing the Texas Association of Addiction Counselors Week. The fight against drug and alcohol addiction must be fought on all fronts. It demands collaboration and coordination, as well as effective analysis, training, and implementation to make sure chosen approaches are, achieved, are achieving desired results. This week will serve as a great opportunity for like-minded professionals to share information, network, and learn about innovative new strategies. I commend all involved for their commitment to this important field. Prevention and treatment are of the utmost priority. As you well know, addiction has a destructive impact on the physical and emotional health of the individual and on the well-being of the society as a whole. But together, we can work toward a brighter future for our state and our nation. Thank you. That's signed by Greg Abbott. So as you continue, I want to say thank you, and also it's very crystal clear the governor says thank you to all the work that you choose to do. So thank you, Julie, for having me here with you. Thank you. Okay, one other thing before we bring up our speaker. Inside your, your uh, conference bag, you have a piece of paper that has the app. If you are a technology challenge like I am, it has step one, two, and three. Go in and it, it has your website. Go in. That gives you everything on this conference. You can sit there. If you lose your bag like I tend to do, you can pull up your phone and you'll see where I'm going next to the next and you can see who's speaking next. So download your apps and use those. This is something new. <clears throat> and at this time... I want to thank all of you for the great conference. We're going to go ahead and, and bring Eric Ells up. Eric is with the American Addiction Recovery Center. Thank you. <laughs> and bon voyage. Thank you, and I would like to thank the committee for all your hard work and dedication and hours, uh, not only this year, but in previous years. If you've ever been to a chapter meeting in Dallas, you know I always start with, Howdy, friends, Eric Hales from American Addiction Centers, and everybody laughs, so that, that was my thing. Okay, so um, a few words and uh, introductions before we get to our keynote speaker. Um, I want to bring up Peter Maldonado. He's our treatment consultant for uh, the, the good part of Texas, Austin, San Antonio, and now Houston. And uh, he's our treatment consultant that uh, coordinates referrals or uh, he's a good resource for uh, continuance of care or aftercare, that kind of thing. Um, a little bit about American Addiction Centers. Uh, we have uh, 14 facilities around the U.S. We are a publicly held company. We're one of the only uh, treatment networks that deal with adult treatment uh, of addiction um, in the U.S. So we're publicly held. Uh, we actually, when... When Peter gets the referral, we go through our process and 
uh, refer them or send them to the best facility that fits their insurance or their in income. So some of our facilities are a little higher end. Our, our closest one's in Dallas called The Greenhouse. Let me introduce Dennis Waymeyer. He's our lead therapist from The Greenhouse joining us today. And uh, one of our premier facilities in the company. And thanks for being with us. Uh, and then we place them in the, in the best place possible for, for their treatment. Um, let me also introduce our keynote speaker today, a good friend of mine, Reinhard Straub. Uh, Reinhardt is actually um, from the Rhode Island area. He's the founder of the Clinical Services of Rhode Island. Um, he's been in this industry for 27 years and conducted over a thousand interventions. Now hundreds of those are doctors for the medical board. Can you imagine doing an intervention for a doctor? <laughs> uh, so uh, he knows what he's doing here. Um, He's now our uh, clinical liaison for American Addiction Centers, and we are thrilled that he's on a tour going around the U.S. speaking on different topics around the U.S., um, so we're thrilled that he could join us today. Now, what I like to talk about, before his professional days as a counselor and uh, administrator of addiction, he was an old rock and roller. Did I say old? Uh, a former rock and roller. Oh. Well, old back in the days of Woodstock, I'm talking about. So he, he played with Aerosmith and hung out with the Monkees. And in fact, Peter Tork took him to his first AA meeting and hung out with him at AA meetings. So uh, he'll talk a little bit more about those days, I'm sure. No, no, you don't want to talk about those days. So let me introduce Reinhard Straub. Thank you. Let me just make sure everything works here, so... I've been uh, advised how to set this up, so let's see. Go Spurs, go, right? <laughs> but because I'm a social worker, a, a uh, people-pleasing ACOA, uh, drunken and uh, everything else, I'm going to say go Mavericks and Rockets and everything else too, right? Because <laughs> I, I don't want to offend. There we go. Is that working? Now, was anybody, did anybody play golf yesterday? Nobody. You should really sign up and play uh, next year. Fantastic day, right? Um, but I'll tell you, I had a disturbing event. I was in one of the sand traps I'm always in when I play golf. And uh, I looked down, and there was... Two skeletons crawling, trying to get the heck out of there, and one looks to the other and goes, yeah, but it's a dry heat today. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the basics. As, uh, I've been doing this a long time, and I was trained in the old school way. The people that trained me were trained by people who had been in the business uh, since it started, and I really feel that there's a tradition that I know you all are, are upholding and, and keeping alive, and I know there's some new folks here, so... I'm going to start pretty basic, and I have other stuff that I think will be of interest to those of you that have been doing this longer than me and probably could do a better job up here than me. Why are, why are interventions necessary? Why do we have to, like, uh, I mean, if you have a heart attack, you go to the hospital. It's not like, I don't really know if I want to go to the hospital today. You know, you go. But with, with what are the unique characteristics of substance use disorder that we have to you know, plead, fight, uh, set things up, get people moving, kick the can down the road, try to get somebody to do something to save their own life. We'll talk a bit about that. And some clinical strategies. And I say designated patient because, you know, who's my patient? The patient is whoever's in the room that I'm meeting with at the time. It might be the family, it might be the uncle, it might be 
even the extended uh, people I deal with, uh, you know, attorneys, judges, uh, you know, doctors, everybody else that I get involved with when I'm trying to help somebody. And what are some, what are the realistic goals? What are the realistic goals? I was in the rock and roll business, that's no big deal. As long as I don't get electrocuted, we're all set. <laughs> so in my experience, Substance use disorders require chronic disease management, just like diabetes. I got a 17-year-old son. When he was 15, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. 3% of diabetics have type 1. Now, he, you know, they saved his life at the hospital. His uh, sugar level was 1,200. Uh, you know, way up there, right? They didn't give him a gold coin when he left the hospital and say, go with God. Right? I mean... Now it's turned my life upside down. Now I got to deal with my ex-wife. I got to deal with a 15-year-old who really doesn't want to deal with his old guy, and he's got to talk. I got to take him away from whatever he was doing. You know, these kids are like this, and it, it, it required that we all rally the troops, and then also to teach him how to manage his own illness. But it really started with us swooping in, getting people to talk to each other who really hadn't communicated at such deep levels, and for a while and to get together. I like the nudge from the judge. Look, I didn't get sober because I thought it was a good idea. Did anybody here get sober because they thought it was a good idea? No. My first wife threatened me with divorce. So I get sober, I go to the Salvation Army after a nice rehab, I do all that, 66 days she says she wants a divorce and, I, and she divorces me. Right, so what the, the point is, I only went to treatment for reason A, I stayed sober for reason B, which came as a result of being in treatment and working a program, going to 10 AA meetings a week, doing everything I was doing to stay sober. Most people don't do anything because they want to. I've treated about 15,000 people. I, I've been involved in their treatment, and I have very few come to me and say, hey, Reinhardt, I want to be a better person. You know. Try to get, a, try to get a, a psychiatrist to talk to a primary care doctor, to talk to you, to talk to the judge, to talk to mom, to, you know, coordinating all that and getting it all together. So everybody's talking to each other. First of all, the time is a problem. It's very difficult. I set up my practice so that I could, I, I could rally the troops. Once again, you're going to hear that a lot, how you, you need to think about this systemically. they got to talk to each other. And it's very difficult to do. I, I, you know, I, I lived in New York for a long time. I had a very 20-year practice there. When I moved to Rhode Island, it took me at least three years to set up a system where I knew who I could, what doctor I could trust not to give my alcoholic Xanax, uh, you know, what detox would work with me, who's going to deal with trauma, who's going to, you know, who, eating disorder specialist. It took at least three years for me to develop that network. And you got to link it together. And if you don't have the family involved or the family's uh, uh, long gone because of the progression of the illness, it's a lot harder and you're almost dead in the water. Now, unless the psychiatric presentation is primary, and look, bipolar is misdiagnosed 50% of the time, the, the planet can't be ADHD, you know? I mean, it's misdiagnosed a lot 50% of the time. I have found that, and I was trained psychoanalytically, I have found that insight therapy, uh, psychiatry, really is very, very difficult to be effective 
uh, with substance use disorder. Sometimes it's actually contraindicated. In other words, I get a lot of patients who've been seeing somebody who's been trying to talk sense to them while they're drinking themselves to death for 10 months, trying to look for the underlying reason why people are drinking. And I see them once, I put them in detox and rehab, and that's, that's the end of it. Not to say they're going to stay sober, but at least we do the right thing off the bat. I, some of you are nodding. I think you've probably had that experience yourself. And that's because, you know, like I've put 400 doctors into rehab. They just don't have the time. My primary care guy, when I see him, seven minutes, right? I see him once a year, seven minutes. Uh, he, uh, he's got two, three others lined up. So uh, what is somebody, if he's got a patient who's got a problem and he refers them to me, he hands them my card. How many alcoholics and drug addicts do you think call me if somebody hands somebody a card? You know, make the call with the patient. It's not enabling. And I, so you go online. Now I go online a lot because I want to see what mom, dad, the uncle, the people are looking at. Uh, intervention online. First step, help them acknowledge they got a problem with self-destructive behavior. It's important for them to admit they had the problem. Absolutely wrong. It takes a long time for somebody to admit they have a problem because in the same online site, they go on to say that one of the most difficult aspects is simply admit they have a problem. So which is it, A or B? It also says on the, the other site I checked out, the goal is to convince them they have a problem and they need help. And once they admit they have a problem, they can go to rehab. If it was that easy, I wouldn't be standing up here. You know, if you have a heart attack, boom, you go, you go take care of business. Because it also goes on to say, and the same website that it's extremely difficult to convince them they got a problem and their whole mindset is thinking about how to get high, how to get this, how to avoid this, how to slide under the radar. And anything that comes in the way is viewed as a threat. So the mindset. Now, remember Hippocrates, the Greek physician? I don't know why. I'm a little compulsive. I read a lot of his treatise. This is the ethical uh, way that doctors should conduct themselves. The physician must not only be prepared to do what is right himself, but to also make the patient, the attendants, and the externals cooperate. This is pushy stuff. This is pushy. I have found that passive, uh, you know, sitting back, creating a, a safe holding environment, uh, meeting where they're at and all that, it, it just has not worked that well in my practice. Now, denial is, you know, this is the only, and you guys know this, I don't need to tell you, the primary symptom is the patient uh, who has the illness, doesn't believe they have the illness, you know that. But it's an unconscious narcissistic defense to avoid pain. Now, I don't mean Donald Trump narcissistic, okay? Somebody laughed, good. <laughs> narcissistic implies that it is primitive. It is unknown to the person. Now, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but every single person in this room is going to die someday. Now, I'm not going to die, but you all are going to die. <laughs> Can you imagine going through your entire day from when you have your coffee to, you know, taking a shower, eating your lunch, knowing that you're going to die and it's right here in the front every waking moment. Now, you have to push that down. Eight-year-olds who, when that's around the age when kids start realizing that they're mortal, uh, what do they want to be? They want to be Power Rangers. They want to be firefighters. They want to be police officers. Uh, they want to be something that's powerful that, in their way, ameliorates this, this fear of death. And they say, hey, Mommy, am I going to die? 
Yes, honey, but not for a really long time. It's kind of how we push it on out. It's got to be pushed out. Addicts have pathological denial. And all the T-I-O-N words. And I have found that the problem is not that they don't think they got a problem. The problem is they aren't willing to do what is, which is required to take care of the problem. And if I can find an easier, softer way, I'm going to take that route. They need help. They need external help, pressure, leverage, linkage, communication, uh, all that kind of stuff to help them do that. And, I, and, and this is what I've done in my practice, and I'm sure a lot of you are doing this as well. Now, I like shame and guilt because if you don't feel bad about what you're doing, you're not going to change anything. Shame is you feel bad about who you are. Guilt, you feel bad about what you've been doing or what you've done. Addicts have both in spades, and I don't beat them over the head with it. I get them to talk about it because I want them to talk about it. And if they melt down into a bubble of tears, all the better. I want to pull it out of them. I don't bang them over the head with it. The family's denial is even greater than the addict's denial. Now, what do I mean? Anybody have an idea about what I mean about the family? Yes. Correct. They're in denial, and they're, the, the, the big piece of their denial, the major portion, is they need help just as much as the addict. And, you know, a lot of it has gone by the wayside with insurance, with, uh, you know, uh, everything that's... We, we, we have less and less time to do all those things to engage the entire system in the process. You've got to address their denial because they're going to be the ones that are going to help you and the system is going to be the ones that are going to help you kick the can down the road and make sure the addict continues in treatment. And without external leverage, deus ex machina, as we say in Greek, you know, the chances of success are greatly diminished. And you guys all know this uh, about substance use disorders. But I would say, let's say you go to a hospital and you see somebody who's just had a leg amputated because their diabetes has progressed to a point where now we're taking, we've got to remove stuff because there's no circulation. We feel bad about that, don't we? Don't we feel sorry for that person? All right, so you got 22-year-old Johnny. He goes to the detox. On the ride home after he overdoses, uh, he buys some more heroin and overdoses again. We want to kill the person, don't we? I mean, it's a different dynamic, but we think differently about it. And it's very, you know, it lends itself to countertransference. It lends itself to frustration on our parts and burnout and all those things. But looking at it, and I talk to families a lot about it as, as like, you know, Johnny's got diabetes, and they're like, what? No, it's the same. It's, it's in the same, you know, incurable. First thing to go is when you start getting ill with this disease, you know. Now, I put spirituality in a different way, and I'm going to kind of blow through this a little bit because you guys are all experts. What is your reason for being on the planet? Why are you here? What are you going to do with your life? That is, you know, the thing that addicts lose first. Now, I remember at 1987, I was sitting in rehab. I had just spent uh, 19 years in hell, uh, two weeks uh, in this detox and rehab. And my mom and my brother, Al-Anon Knights, they're, they're sitting across from me, and... Uh, my brother goes, well, I guess you'll be wanting to go back to college now, right? I'm going, you got any cigarette money? You know, I'm in a very different spot. They're way ahead of me. I think we as therapists get way ahead. We get way ahead because we can see it as plain as the nose on their face, can't we? But they're in a whole different place. I want some cigarette money. And cravings, 
I think we've got to do a lot more, and I do a lot with cravings, because who the hell wants to have intrusive thinking that is, who, who wants to uh, have an urge? Who wants to have the obsession? It's got to be removed, right? I mean, so we really got to work, I like working very specifically on strategies to help people have that go away. I would not be sober if I still had the obsession. And emotional regulation. Where is, you know, serotonin? Serotonin regulates anxiety, depression, right? Where is that produced? Where is that produced? It's produced in a small intestine, 85%. When you drink booze, which is an acid, you are killing the production of serotonin at its source. That is why 80% of everybody I've treated after they get sober or while they're trying to get sober have a major mood disorder, anxiety, and depression. I used to wake up straight in the morning, 3 in the morning, wake up straight and realize I was going to die someday. It was like out of my mind, you know, but that's because I, I had no serotonin on board. And when you get sober, as you guys know, you get sober in reverse. We detox you, you start eating, you start sleeping, and then eventually, after a long time, you decide what you want to be when you grow up. Now the steps, the first step, right? We admitted we were powerless. It didn't say we believed it. didn't say we accepted it. So it's a start came to believe, didn't go poof, you believe, it's a process connotating this coming to believe. Bill W. was very clear about restore to sanity. For me to do heroin, smoke crack again, and drink again, be insane, right? He was talking specifically being restored to sanity is having that obsession lifted. And that's what he's talking about. And then, of course, you know the story about the three frogs on a log and all that, you know, about, uh, you know, three, two make a just decision to jump, how many are left, right? Well, three, because all they did was make a decision. They didn't do anything. So really, when we start with folks, we're really, it's an acknowledgement of a condition. They really haven't done much yet. When I put doctors or nurses in rehab, about six weeks into treatment, they start realizing they got a problem. And they're starting to think, well, maybe I ought to do something about it. It takes a long time. The problem is we got like, what, five days of, of this level, six days at that level, ten days at this level, and then we're going to go to outpatient, you're going to be all good, everything good to go, right? How are you going to make them continue to do it? You know, we have this thing in AA about necessary to raise the bottom, of course. I would say that nowadays uh, a bottom could be potentially fatal, or it, it could be a high bottom. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't hit a bottom in New York City. I just dragged my ass on the ground for 10 years, you know, right? So it's unique and relative to each person. And, you know, and you have to work in the, in the, con, uh, the constructs of where they're at, of course. But the illness is the same. If you're, let's say you're pre, pre-insulin dependent diabetic or you're, uh, you know, insulin dependent and they're, they're amputating stuff, it's the progression, but the treatment and what we do is virtually the same. Person has to manage their illness. Now in America, a lot of, lot of stuff being sold. We are less than 5% of the world's entire population, right? We consume 75% of the entire world's pharmaceutical supply. Okay? Did you guys know this? It's amazing. I mean, Last night, how many ads did you see? Try this, try that. Tell your doctor. Your doctor knows, right? I mean, we, 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 uh, this is better living through chemistry. I thought it was bad in the 80s. It's way worse now. It is way worse now. Uh, you know, what we did with smoking, 
really is what we ought to be doing with our children these days when it comes to medications, when it becomes, should, should they take Vicodin, uh, you know, if they have a dental procedure, uh, if you have anxiety, you know, we really need to educate kids from the ground up. My daughter, who's here today, when she was seven, we were teaching her how to use the uh, telephone, you know, and, it, and she picked it up and go, is your mom there? She goes, no, she's at a meeting, right? I mean, it was, you know, it was part of our, our, our family culture. She didn't know what the heck meetings were, but she knew we did them, you know, so we started, we started early. People are concerned about starting kids early. I stay in an age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate way. We need to include the young as well in the educational process as fits their age and, their, and where they're at. We also consume 99% of the world's morphine. We don't like pain. And I'll tell you, the level of pain across the nation is exactly the same as it was 20, 30 years ago. How, and we've quadrupled the opiate supply. And guess what? During the same period of time, overdoses quadrupled as well. There is a connection. I'm sure of it. John Hopkins, I, I just spoke there. They didn't, they didn't even know about their own study they had done, but great, great organization down there in Baltimore. Uh, they found that out of the 1,000 doctors they interviewed, that a third didn't realize how people got addicted to the medications they were prescribing. They thought they were snorting them, crushing them, doing all this other kind of stuff, or taking off the, you know, the coverings and all that. Uh, they didn't realize that all you got to do is take the pill. Even if you take the pill as prescribed, you might get addicted. Now, here's what we're really dealing with. This is an eight-year, $27 million study that was conducted by the NIHHH. So when we're dealing with patients and their families, we really have to be realistic. They went to every single person in this study had been to rehab, a 28-day rehab, and they all had been to several different forms and types of outpatient. There was no different, didn't matter if they did AA-based, didn't matter if they did uh, motivational interviewing, and didn't matter what form of aftercare they got. After six months, left less than half were sober. After a year and a half, 38% were sober. And after three years, about a quarter was sober, right? That's really, those are the facts. And, if, and I'd be happy to, if you email me, I'd be happy to send you a, a PowerPoint copy of the, uh, with all the references and everything else. So this is really what we're dealing with. This is chronic disease management. This is not fix Johnny, Johnny's going to get fixed, you know? When somebody says what's your, you know, they see a nice website, don't they? Everybody's walking down the beach, you know, and it's like beautiful. You know, I went to one rehab because it showed the beach. I never went to the freaking beach, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> they didn't let people go to the beach. They thought you were going to swim to someplace else, I think. So when they ask you, you know, what's your, what's your success? What was my son's success rate for being cured of his diabetes when he left the hospital? Zero. I'm not trying to get us disheartened. I just want to be realistic about uh, how we're going to manage, how the patient's going to manage it, how the family's going to manage it, and how we're going to work with the externals to help them manage it. It's the same rate of relapse as asthma, hypertension, and diabetes, substance use disorders. But we look at those, those illnesses very differently, don't we? You know? 
Now, the addict wants what they want when they want it, and they're focused on, you know, like I was, you got any cigarette money, and, you know, hey, how, you know, I'm not going to be in pain when you detox me, are you? Uh, and I can still take my Xanax right here on this detox. You know, they want what they want when they want it, and that's what they're thinking right there. Okay, they've hit me up with Versid, or benzodiazepine. I'm being rolled into the, uh, the uh, operating room to have my gallbladder removed. I think this would be a great time to do psychotherapy, don't you? But we kind of do it a lot when we're, we're dealing, we got a pair, impaired person in front of us and we're trying to talk sense into them. You know, they didn't, you know, I, I would, God forbid if, let's face it, Bill W., you know, they didn't bring him to an AA meeting, of course there weren't any yet, but let's say the equivalent was they tried to bring him to a meeting to sober him up. They brought him to the hospital. You know, they really need to be stabilized first and re removed from the insanity and a lot of my friends with 20, 30 years sobriety bring people that are drinking to meetings and this, that, and the other thing. They really, a lot of them really need the hospital. And, you know, because it's, it's really difficult to uh, sober somebody up in that condition. I know, because I went to AA drinking for five years. You know, but I needed to do that five. And so I talked, you know, we talked to the family about this is chronic disease management. You got to be sta got to get stabilized first. It's going to take a lot of time and effort. I don't pretty much say that to the addict right off the bat because, uh, you know, they want what they want when they want it. Now, the family wants a quick fix also, and they're in crisis. Fix my kid, like somebody said. Yeah, thank you. Buy some tickets from her, will you? <laughs> there she is. They're in denial, too, about what they need to do about their own recoveries because they're all focused on, uh, you know, poor little Johnny here who just overdosed on heroin. And I'm not the one with the problem when I talk to them about Alan all and all that, you know. So what I start talking to them immediately is about the fact that Johnny's got diabetes. We need a long-term plan. Detox, rehab, intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, sober living, outpatient urine testing, a good prescriber who's not going to kill him, AANA. Get a sponsor. Why do we get a sponsor? Because you don't want to die. That's why we get a sponsor. Get a home group too, you know. So we, we explain, you know, we explain to these folks that this is what uh, is required, and I explain it to the family because I don't want to blow the I don't want to blow the designated addict patient out of the water. And I start educating them, and I uh, so that they will be an ally to make sure that person still continues in treatment. And then also, if I knock it out of the park, you know, you guys need to get in recovery too. The family, you guys need to get in recovery. So what changes first, thinking or behavior, when you're dealing with uh, somebody who's getting high? What do you guys think? Thinking or behavior, right? Behavior. Behavior. I was 66 days sober on the corner, downtown Albany, New York, living at the Salvation Army, and I'm pumping quarters, pumping quarters into a phone booth because there weren't any cell phones, and if there was a cell phone, it was the size of a shoebox, right? So I'm pumping all my cigarette money away into this corner, uh, a phone booth to find out that, uh, you know, she wants a divorce. Do you think I wanted to get drunk right there and then? My first thought was, well, now nobody will give me any crap if I totally get wasted because she asked me for a divorce. My second thought was, are you out of your mind? My third thought was, yes, you're out of your mind. Go to a meeting and bitch about it. And I did, you know, but I wanted to. So thinking follows and, and, and comes after Behavior, bring the body and the mind will follow. That's why we have this stuff. 
You know, so we're not going to talk sense into people. We have to help them. We have to kick the can down on the road and be ahead of them, but at the same time pulling them up forward. Think, think, think. I think that's two thinks too many. And there's a reason, there's a reason that it's upside down at AA too, right? It says into action, the chapter. It doesn't say into thinking, right? It tells, you know, it tells us very specifically about what we should do, not what we should think. I mean, we, you know, I mean, I don't, certain parts of the country when I go, there's, there's meetings that are all kind of different, but you know, there's that old school, like put, take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth and all that, and then there's like places where, oh yeah, you know, you're back, five days sober, you know, like 15 times. So it's different all over the country. But we want people to do stuff, recovery activity. I don't care if you don't want to do it, I want to help you do it. Because if you trust your thinking, you're going to get high again. So why would you trust your thinking? You've been out there for whatever, how long, you've done this, you've done that, because of your thinking, so let's, let's not think for a while. And this is what we talk, that's what I talk to folks about. Immaturity, I call it Swiss cheese development. Parts of me, when I got sober, were 37. Parts of me were like 19. Parts of me were like a little punk, you know, because I hadn't grown up. But parts of me, you know, so it's kind of like a... It's a mishmash of development and immaturity. I mean, how many 25-year-olds are you treating that are 25 going on 16? No? Anybody saying yeah to that? Is it too early? <laughs> Self-centered, you know. Uh, the world revolves around them. This is what we're dealing with. Projection. I'm going to blame you for what I've caused. All over the place. Now, the family's going to do that, too. As well, they're going to blame the addict for the fact that they've got uh, IBS, the fact they got depression, they're having panic attacks, they're worried. Just not, they're, going to, they're going to do that as well. Poor insight into how uh, you're experienced by other people. Alcoholic goes to a party, he's having a great time, fantastic party, and there's no tomorrow, right? Next day, nobody will talk to him. Well, why is that? Well, first of all, they're remembering the buzz and how they felt internally while everybody else is experiencing a jerk. Now, the same thing is true in group, when they're in group therapy. The same thing is true when they're sitting, you know, you get, you're, you're like, I can't believe this guy, I don't get it. He's overdosed three times in the last two months, or he's drinking himself to death, and he's got cirrhosis, and we're like shocked. We're shocked that they don't get it. That's the illness, and the family's in crisis. Now, I don't know if you guys know who Carl Whitaker is. I trained with this guy. He was a world-class guy. He used to do, he would do family therapy with a family on stage, like on stage with 400 people. Amazing, amazing guy. Um, and, you know, and I think this is something, the takeaway today is you guys are, a lot of you are characters and pieces of work, I, and I know you are, and because you've got to be kind of to be in this business. And he really, and he was a character. And he really believed that being a forceful personality, to be a, a, somebody to, you know, a force to contend with, a force in nature, uh, that was the way to bring change in families. You get right in there and, 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 and you're working hard with them right off the bat. He really believed that his personality and his experience and his wisdom, uh, that's what he relied on. He didn't, he didn't really have this technique. I get people to say, what uh, modality do you use when you uh, do an intervention? I say the one that would work on this family, 
you know. You know, when people say, well, I do this every time, and I, this is how I do it, and I rent, this, I rent a room at the Holiday Inn, and I have the guy, you know, we write letters. And that may not work. That'll only work on a family that that works with, right? So it's unique and has to be designed for each individual patient and their family. And, you know, he got families to open up. I mean, it was just amazing to watch him. And, uh, you know, uh, he's no longer with us, and it's a huge loss, I think, because he was just one of those guys. He viewed the family as an integrated whole, not, not as individuals, you know, that, that was a tribe, kind of, you know, and he, he looked at it like that. And he really felt there was lack of closeness, and that's why families uh, had problems, and that's why they got to treatment. All your addict families real close, you know, you got the addicts isolating, they're, they're doing this, they're robbing, they're, they're doing whatever they're doing. It tears families apart, and he really felt, so whatever he was using for whatever the issue, whether it be incest, whether it be, uh, you know, somebody who's suicidal in the family or substance use disorder, the principles are the same. Be a force of nature. Be a personality to contend with. Go with your gut uh, and, and, and roll up your sleeves and get in there and work with the family was what he taught me. <clears throat> He really equated the, uh, the togetherness of the family with personal growth. You know, even if your new family is AA or NA or, or GAQAZA, whatever the A is, uh, you know, you're, it's, it, you're creating a family and, you're, and it's individually growth, which is a result of the whole thing working. He really, extent, he really uh, wanted everybody involved to the extent that it was okay. He really liked getting kids involved, too. Now, for a year, a bunch of years ago, I got out of the substance use field for one year, and I only worked with children. When I left New York, I said goodbye to about 70 kids under 16 that I was working with, right? And I, you know, they would send me all the kids that were from uh, alcohol and, and addict families, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I had this four-year-old, youngest patient I'd ever worked with, and I did a lot of art therapy with her, and I would say, could you draw me a picture of your father, who was a crack addict? And she drew me a picture of this guy with the bars in front of him, and he was supposed to pick her up, and he never picked her up, and she'd be waiting, wanting, you know, wanting him to uh, pick her up, and she just had this incredible pain. And I knew I was getting somewhere with her, and I knew that the therapy was working when she called me a poopy head. They'll tell you in their way. They'll tell you in their way and honor it and use it. We have this demand for work in our profession. Whitaker also sometimes would co-facilitate, and I've done that a lot where, I'll, you know, uh, another therapist may be working with a wife, I may be working with the alcoholic, uh, vice versa, and then we'd work a while, and we would prepare them to put them together so we could move the addict to where they needed to be in treatment, as well as the, the codependent, the enabler. It also, you know, you don't want to be the rock star in the group and run the group. You want the group to learn how to run the group, and that's why co-facilitation sometimes was uh, very, very useful, very useful. And he would turn up the temperature on families. He would turn up the temperature. He would just, you know, you could probably imagine what I'm like when I see a family. I'm pretty pretty direct, pretty straightforward, and that's my style. Your style may be different, but I would say use what you're comfortable with. Draw that energy and focus that energy in a way that 
resonates with who you are, and you'll be more effective. And trust it. Trust your gut. Because, look, we all care, and, and, and a lot of times we're second-guess if we ought to try that or not. I would say it, it, sometimes taking risks on our part is very, very effective. And, you know, when, you start, when I first start working with a family, and, and Whitaker taught me this, is at first they're defensive and they're closed. And then as you invade the family, he would say, you join with them. And they start seeing you as somebody who really cares, somebody who, do you have the knowledge that can help me? Are you competent enough? Do you know what you're talking about? That's what they want to know. All right, do you know what the hell you're talking about? Because, you know, I don't know. I've been dealing with this for 12 years or 15 years or whatever. And do you know what happened to my son? That's my kid, by the way. They want to know that you're the real deal. And that's a big part of, uh, you know, how you can move them along by joining with them. And then when you get to that point, you can start talking about pain. I go for the pain. you got to be fierce. This is fearless work. You go for the pain. It's so much better than beating them over the head with, you know, you're overdosed three times? What are you, nuts? You say that to an addict, they're gone. You, they, you've, they, you've left them. But when you say, you know, you talk to them about that four-year-old or they talk about their four-year-old, elicit it. And now you can, once you get to that phase, you can really talk to them about how these hurts have affected everybody and how it's the dynamics of what's going on. And they can work on their own problems and individuate and do what they need to do. But it's in the context of the family that this stuff happens. Now, when you're working with a group, what it's a group forms, right? You get, you get all these people from, as we say, from uh, steerage to captain's table, right? You know, you get all these folks together in a group, and it forms. They start norming. They try to figure out, you know, what this, this one's really serious. This one's not too serious. That one there thinks it's okay to take Xanax. I thought we were sober here, you know. So they start doing that. They start storming. They start flexing their muscles, right? And the final stage of that group, they start performing. So there is this getting into the work incrementally that is so important and not to be so far ahead of our, 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 our designated patient. So, you know, the first thing, the first thing I do is when I'm getting a patient, I try to call everybody uh, and talk to them and get as much information as I possibly can get. I want to find out who's involved. Uh, if you don't get the family involved in the very beginning, you ain't ever going to get them. You got to get them early on, and they've got to be involved. You know, when we when we did evaluations for doctors. Believe me, they signed releases for the planet. We needed to speak to everybody. It's a forensic out, uh, you know, uh, evaluation. Okay, you're interviewing an axe murderer. Did you kill those people? Hell no, right? Well, you know, I want the pictures. I want to talk to the, the victims. I want to talk to the ones that's, you know, it's really got to be uh, when I'm evaluating people, I want to know from others, externals and collateral context to find out the true real deal from their perspective. It's so important when we're doing this work. Starts with the first phone call. I spend a ton of time on the phone talking to folks. And the goal is to get them into treatment, not for them to have an epiphany or a spiritual awakening. You know, get in the car, whatever. You know, let's be realistic about what we're going to accomplish the first time I start talking to folks in the first day or two. 
and have everything ready to go. I mean, what's, you know, it's great. Yeah, they should be going to Betty Ford. That would be ideal. Well, if they don't have the money, they don't have any insurance. So it's really good to know what's practical, pragmatic, and what's possible. Now, you know, lots of times I go into hospitals and the nurse will say, can you convince that guy with pancre uh, pancreatitis there from drinking to go to rehab? And I'm, no. <laughs> you know, sometimes. But... I, I don't ever ask, and I t teach nurses and doctors, don't ask them if they want to go to rehab because most of the time they're going to say no. I say, this is what's available to you. Doesn't it look nice on the website? You know, I, I, give, them, I give them a forward positive way of how they can look at what it is. Because look, it's so easy nowadays to say, well, when you're ready here, here's, here's this Reinhardt's card. Or when you're ready, call this, you know. And we feel it's absolved us our responsibility to help that person. I, I really want to do a lot more on the front end. So I want to know, uh, and I want to have everybody alerted. I talk to the lawyer. I talk to the, if I can, to the judge. I talk to their therapist, their doctor. I talk to as many people as possible so I can get my team together. And I remove them from finances because, I mean, let's face it, if you start talking to an addict, you know, he's like, well, you know, he hasn't talked to his kids or paid the bills in three months, but he can't come up with the deductible, right? I mean, so you want to remove as much as you possibly can because uh, you're dealing with somebody who's impaired. Predict employment issues. You know, even, you know, uh, child care. I mean, I had an addict to say uh, he had just overdosed. I, I can't go to rehab. I just bought a puppy. Great. You know? So we got somebody to watch his dog. And we took care of that before... We already knew that before I even met the guy. Remove the barriers to the extent that you can before you start with somebody. And have, you need to have all that specific necessary information about what is the milieu in which this person lives. What is his world? Get in, find out about his world. And we, this is facilitated by a clinician who has realistic expectations. You know? Who do you include? Well, I think it's very important to who you do include and don't include. A lot of times I'll have, uh, I'll get Granny to come in because uh, Johnny, the 22-year-old, is respectful when Granny's in the room. Sometimes I won't have Granny because she's a jerk to her. So these are the kinds of things that you want to like try to start figuring out up front. And you want to have goals and a plan of action to the extent that you can up front. And then sometimes, after all that's done, you schedule with the addict. Sometimes uh, we do that right up front, and because we know all that, and we meet with the addict first. Uh, uh, but I would suggest to you be flexible about how you do your work. And the clinician should really decide who's involved. I mean, the interview, and even on the telephone, I can pretty much tell, and I know you all, a lot of you can tell uh, who should be there. You know, you want to have a united front. You want to have a team that is working together. We don't want to have uh, somebody involved in the initial engagement phase who the addict is just going to, they're going to be going at it and keeping us off, our, keeping us off track. So you want to uh, have people involved that are, that are going to be helpful to get the person in the car to go to treatment. So look for leverage. Like I said, I like the nudge from the judge. I like... I like the fact that there is something compelling somebody to go to treatment. Doctors, what are they worried about? Their license. Well, 
Uh, the same is true with somebody worried about probation or jail and, or uh, all the other things that happen to us when we're trying to get sober. Marriage, job, place to live, cell phone, all that kind of stuff. Treatment usually fails because there is a lack of united and consistent leverage, you know? I mean, I'm not saying all the time. Sometimes people just don't want to get sober. They're not ready. I get all that. But a lot of times uh, it takes a long time before they even have made a decision whether they think they're an addict or not. Like I said, four to six weeks in my experience. And many times the family caves or they're unwilling to impose leverage. One of the worst phone calls I got not too long ago was a father calling me, thanking me for my help, but his son had just overdosed, you know, because they did not want to hurt his feelings. They did not want to hurt his feelings, so they didn't follow through on compelling him to do something he didn't want to do, which is to go to rehab. Those are terrible phone calls. We all get them. Everybody's looking for a quick fix. They, they, uh, 28 days ought to be, you know, be good, and he'll be coming home right after that, right? I mean, we need him here at work. Uh, we need him here to watch his daughter, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, uh, they're, they're drinking themselves to death when we got them. So, you know, turning the family's focus on chronic disease management on the reason that they need treatment for themselves is so, so required. And they, sometimes they feel sorry for them because they've been tough. They've never been tough ever. And now all of a sudden they're starting to feel bad about that. That's a lot like building up to a drink, building up to a drug for the family. They do this parallel process that's exactly the same. And you can tell, you know, irritability, restless, irritable, and discontent. A lot of times, I'm not saying we can predict it, but a lot of times when people are on, their ro on the road back to using again, can't we kind of see that a lot? We do. The families do the same kind of thing in their way. Be prepared for resistance. I treat resistance and ambivalence. That's what I treat. I don't treat addiction. They don't want to do what they should do to take care of themselves. They're going to push you. It's not an annoying distraction. It's what I treat. We, a lot of times we get frustrated, burnt out, uh, you know, because they're not listening. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're, 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 they just don't believe us, whatever it is. Uh, so that's what we treat. And, and, you know, when we confront them, what's, you know, what do we get? We get all, once again, we get all the T-I-O-N words, right? Never missed a day of work. Always paid my bills, right? And, you know, you'd need Xanax, too, if you live my life, right? So there's a lot of that. Uh, justification, so all the T-I-O-N words. So I would be prepared. For them to blame their family, for them to blame their boss. If you were married to her, you'd drink too. There's going to be a lot of that projection stuff going on. The, and the family's going to do the same thing. And dealing with that, that dynamic of the family blaming the addict for all their problems. Meanwhile, while they continue to enable and, uh, you know, act codependent, right? Don't take the bait. It's so easy to take the bait and it's so easy to... To, you know, to not be neutral. Now, now what I do is I have uh, free family groups at the three sites that I started, and uh, you know, the IOP would be over here in this room, and you hear them, I'd be running a family group, and the IOP, they're all laughing and yucking it up, and it's really loud, and everybody in my group, the family group, is crying, you know? But over there, they're, the addicts are like whooping it up or whatever. And I had a grandmother in the group say, 
Should I give Johnny keys to my apartment so when he robs me, he doesn't have to break in? You can't make this up, you know. Now, because she was in group, and they just, they, they crushed her there, you know. And I had people who had been down further down the road who had a kid in rehab. Somebody else had a kid in rehab who now was out there using again. And people in Al-Anon, and they're, they're, they're working with her, you know. Three months later, she finally had him arrested, and he's sober two years now. Now, look, there's a lot of stories that did not end so smoothly, you know. But she made me look good in that group because, you know, she finally did. But she wanted to know that she was doing the right thing. She was a mother. She wanted, grandmother as well, she wanted to know that what we were suggesting that she should do was the right thing. Do you know what you're talking about? Are you competent? Can you help me? She needed to be convinced of that long before she was going to pull the trigger and finally do the right thing the next time he robbed her. And he had robbed, I mean, he had robbed her, like, repeatedly. Amazing. Just amazing. Now, a lot of times, uh, you know, you hear a lot of times, uh, like, the, the, I can't, I don't like tricking people anymore as much as I used to. You know, in other words, uh, where you... They come to a session and like everybody's there with their letters and all that kind of stuff. Too much of that on TV. They walk into the room and they go, oh my God, I know what this is. See ya. Right? A lot of, I've found, I've really found that, uh, you know, don't really need to do that as much anymore. That it, to the extent, to the extent that you get the, the, the wagon circled, that you get people on board, till you got your team built, it, you need to do less and less and less and less of that kind of thing. There is no surprise in the invitational model. You schedule a session and you invite the you invite the, the addict. I do the session whether they show up or not. I'll tell you, there's nothing worse for an addict to wonder what the heck they're talking about. Right? It's powerful. It's powerful. They're not there. They want to know. And I've had them show up five minutes before the session was going to end and go, what are you guys talking about? What are you talking about? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's very powerful, very useful. And, you know, we'll say, well, we're talking about you. You know, you got a problem, I hear. <laughs> you know, And, you know, sometimes then we'll, we'll, we can move on from there. Uh, this is a very effective model for some families. Now, I don't care if it's an intervention. I don't care if it's engagement and treatment. I don't care if it's inpatient, IOP. The level of care is irrelevant in terms of the capacity to be flexible, to be flexible and engage as many as you can so you are pulling the system in to support ongoing disease management. And the family should continue to meet with you regardless of whether they want treatment or not, you know? And I'll get into a little bit of that, too, because sometimes the best thing to do is nothing, to wait for the next crisis, but prepare the family for the next crisis that's inevitable. Sometimes we, we admit the entire family simultaneously because they're willing to do that up front. Now, not, not every family is willing to do that up front. Some, you know, they, they don't have the time. Uh, they're working, they're, they're, they don't have a, you know, they're destitute, whatever the issue is. And once again, even if the addict is not involved. And we encourage them to go to Alateen. I don't know if you're aware of this, there's Alatot. 
There's allopretine. You guys have that out here? I mean, you know, out of the mouths of babes, you know, we start them early. And this is a good choice if you got angry, angry addicts. You know, get everybody in, get everybody to the extent that you can involved, who's appropriate to be involved, and you determine who's going to be involved by making sure the focus is on recovery. And if you bring folks in, that all they're going to do is bicker and fight at each other because it's just too hostile. You may want to wait and let them process that stuff individually before you pull them into the to the mix. And this is the place to really deal with family enabling. You know, my mother would have jumped in front of a train for me, right? You know, but I'll tell you, at one point at the end, she walked in the room and I knew I was screwed. I knew I was going someplace and doing something, despite that look. She'd been going out and on for seven years. It took seven years. I thought she was going for my father. I didn't realize she didn't like him. But she was, you know, because I couldn't be an alcoholic. You can't be going to Al-Anon. But then I found out she was going to Al-Anon for herself. And I was like, what, you're not going for me? You know, right? <laughs> now, I, I was involved in physician health care uh, in a diversion program. Uh, we had uh, 5,000 doctors that we had monitored since the program started when I started in the early 90s. There is this new categorization in the ASAM, safety, safety sensitive workers, you know. And I'll tell you, there's all these types of folks. People who we want to have sober. I'll tell you, I was in a plane crash once, and when I get on an airplane now, let me tell you, I look at the pilot. You know, I want a frosty dude up there flying, I think. And, you know, if he's got a, his hair's, you know, short like me, I don't want a guy with long hair flying nothing, you know. <laughs> Right? <laughs> so, you know, we do a lot of work with first responders. Now, a lot of bad things can happen to the public. There is, so they created this new cat category of uh, safety-sensitive workers who are getting world-class treatment. They are getting what works, and most of our civilians are not getting what works. Now, there's 48 different physician health programs around the country. Uh, some states are combined, the smaller states. And the average is about 78% of the doctors nationally stay sober for five years when they're monitored in these programs. Now, you remember the dismal results I showed you? About three years, 27% were sober. It, now, in New York, 5,000 doctors, 88% stayed sober for five years while they're in the program. And I'm working now with the Rhode Island Medical Society's diversion program, where, and I, you know, I have a few left in my private uh, practice. And believe me, these, these are folks that probably would not be sober if they weren't in those programs. Actually, what we found was, when you take doctors off, you know, that come in of their own accord, not involvement with anything, and you put them into treatment like everybody else is getting, they get sober at the same rates as civilians. In other words, after after 18 months, 36% are sober, and after three years, 27% are sober. So it is the quality, the quantity, and the, the treatment structure that is working on this category of folks who are lucky enough to get this type of treatment. Now, what does that look like? You know, and I, I'm thinking about this when I'm working with a family and explaining to families, and this is something, unfortunately, that is so difficult to duplicate uh, across the country, but this is absolutely what is required to help somebody with diabetes 
get sober. You know, when I call the hospital or I text the hospital or I page the hospital about my son's dose, you know, because I'm giving him this dose of this stuff and at night he gets it, they're on the phone. We're talking, they're, they're talking to me, the nurse, the doctor calls me for Christ's sake, right? I mean, you know, it's a different way of looking at disease management. So, they've been stabilized. They've gone to rehab. Medical, and this is what every single patient in America with a substance use disorder should get, and I think you can duplicate the kind of results that we get in these programs. Medical care with a primary care doctor and addiction specialist, and they approve all medications, including over-the-counter. Try to get that done. It's difficult, right? We, not, we need to know where you're getting everything and who you're getting it from, and that needs to be monitored. You know, you say it's impossible. Well, that's what's required. And this is why I believe people aren't getting sober. Three to five years of urine monitoring. And if people uh, use or they relapse or continue to use, whatever you want to call it, uh, you, you have a clinical response. It's not necessarily punitive. In our program with the doctors, it wasn't like they were going to get reported to the board or anything. They just couldn't work while they were getting sober again, and they then needed to do something that was going to help them figure out how to get sober again and how they're going to stay sober, and then we'll get back on track. You know what PETH testing is? You guys know, have you heard of PETH testing? PETH testing is you get a little blood stick, you know, just like the diabetes stick, and you, and you put a little blood on four dots. I can tell whether you've been drinking for the last six to 12 weeks, right? Because when you drink alcohol, it's transformed into something that's like formaldehyde, which is transformed into something that's like vinegar, right? You're metabolizing it, right? Well, we just, when we're pest testing people, we look for the specific metabolite to know if they've been drinking or not. It just looks for that one uh, specific metabolite. Now, a, a lot of doctors, they would, I'm going to the Bahamas for a week, you know, and you get all ticked off when he got back from that week vacation that we pest test him. The guy's making 400 grand a year, and he's worried about the $75 test, right? You know, so 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 there there are ways that uh, that, that people can be monitored effectively. And then there's a lot of treatment activities, you know, uh, things that people do. Individual therapy with somebody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to recovery. Now, the therapist, you know, they may have underlying issues. They may have anxiety. They may have depression. They, they may need something uh, other than substance use disorder counseling. Absolutely. And they may, you may recommend stuff. Don't bother neuropsych testing anybody until they've been totally abstinent for 90 days. A waste of time. I can't predict who looks like they have organic brain syndrome, who is after a few months of sobriety is going to look normal and who is still going to have cognitive impairment. I can't predict it. And everybody's going to look like they have impairments if you neuropsych test people too early because they're impaired due to the, the direct action of how drugs have affected the way they function. And group therapy with somebody that knows what they're talking about. I want them going to AA. I want them going to 12-step. Get a sponsor because you don't want to die. You know, and we and it's documented. Now, I mean, isn't it difficult to get people to do all this? I mean, isn't it? I mean, I don't see any heads here. Man. It's hard, but this is how we had this success rate, and all the all the programs around the country are having, and your program here in Texas is having the same success rate uh, success rate for doctors, and a home group. You know, you need to join your tribe. 
Can you imagine? The brain has changed very little in the last 20, 30,000 years. Let's say 20,000 years ago, uh, you know, the men went out in the hunt, the women did what they did. You know, there's a, there's a uh, blazing fire at the end of the day. They're all circled. They're sharing their, their, what they've done for the day. And they're, they're looking at the stars and going, man, I don't know what those are. Or, or the elder will tell them what the stars are, right? That's an AA meeting. You need to be involved in your tribe, your family. You know, that's so important. There, I don't know if you saw this recent article that was really bashing AA, talking about the only thing they, you know, they were talking about the low percentage of white uh, of people getting sober that were going to AA exclusively. And it said the only thing that seems to work is this, uh, this socialization. Duh. You know? Of course it works. And exercise, exercise, exercise. There was a study done, a huge study, of people who were suicidal. One group did exercise only. One group did medication only. One group did medication and exercise. Which group do you think did the best? The group that only did exercise. They did the best. And we have, you know, with safety-sensitive workers, doctors, uh, neurosurgeons, we, you know, we can't have, uh, let's see how you do, right? But with, you know, folks that we treat on a day-to-day -day basis, they may not be willing to uh, go to rehab. They may not be willing to do IOP. They may, well, I'll talk to somebody or, you know, my wife needs help more than me. She can talk to somebody. So, you know, we, we start with a flexible way of drawing them in. And let's, let's see how it goes. You know, maybe you can get them to hand, do a handshake on if they screw up in IOP they'll agree to go to rehab. But you're preparing the family also to make sure that happens by educating them and getting them ready to pull the trigger when, that's, when that does happen. Because how many times, and I'm sure all of you can predict who needs rehab and outpatient isn't going to work, right? I mean, aren't we good at that? We are. Now, I'm fooled. I mean, the job keeps me humble because I'm, you know, I'm not right all the time. Now the family, you know, they're also in that kind of ambivalent mode, too. Isn't there something closer for treatment? You know, when they ask me what's the closest rehab, I say the airport. And, you know, how long does Johnny got to go to those meetings? So you're looking at, you know, does he really got to go for it? You know, I heard you got to go for the rest of your life. You know, I don't know, you know. So there is this parallel process that the family is going through just like the the addict is going through, being unwilling to do what is required. So I suggest that if you can get them involved. I think you can make something that really looks a lot like what we're doing for doctors and pilots and everybody else uh, who we have a huge, huge uh, uh, investment in making sure they're sober. We can, you can kind of duplicate that with families. And to the extent that I can do that with families, I do that. In other words, uh, probation, jail, cell phone, whatever it is, you know, leverage. Uh, you create the same kind of thing where a doctor who's so worried about losing his identity as a physician, which means if he loses his, his license and can't practice, he's lost the core of who he is. Those are the types of things in the a, in a, in a same kind of similar way we can do with the general population and, and institute that type of work with folks and set it up so that we're successful. You know, confrontation is only works when you're supportive. What is the clinical term confrontation means? You point out the difference between what they're saying and what they're doing. It's not like, well, you know, you, you're not like, 
I don't like people telling me what to do. Does anybody here? Or tell, you know, you like that? <laughs> Nobody likes being told what to do. So why do, you know, why do we tell, you know? And blame, humiliation, that's just not effective. You know, give them control and choices to the extent that you can. And don't say it unless you're going to use it. I, w I never would have, uh, you know, I, I was doing an intervention once to tell a little story, and uh, I, I was worried about the mom. The mom would not take this kid's cell phone away. Every drug dealer on the planet was on his cell phone. And the reason she wouldn't do it is she wanted to be able to contact her son because she thought he was going to die that day. Right? And she was not going to turn off the phone. And I'll tell you the intervention. The, the kid shows up. Within five minutes, he's going to rehab. You want to know why? I'll tell you, of course. <laughs> I had the his biological father there who had raised him up until about eight. I had the second husband there who had raised him till 17. And I had the third husband there who had raised him until he's 26. These men had never been in the same room ever before. But they, when, when he walked in a room and saw these three guys, he knew he was screwed. So the work is done in the setup and the prep I didn't have to do anything. They thought I was a genius, but, you know, I'm just another bozo on the bus. But I knew how to kind of set it up so that they could do the work. Immediately, uh, you know, father number two was crying. Now, I'll tell you, father, father number two was an active alcoholic firefighter, too. Al active alcoholics can be very helpful sometimes, you know. I mean, the only rule is that, that uh, the rule is that... Uh, there's an exception for the rule. There's some active alcoholics I wouldn't want near my office in that type of setting also. So that, those are the kinds of things you've got to suss out and figure out what's going to work. My interest is get in the car, we're going. You know, let's get the thing moving. That's, that's uh, what we're trying to do. And, they, and tell you, my mother, I could play her like a fiddle. Play her like a fiddle, right? And, they, and I could sense when the pressure was on and when the pressure is not on. And they know that. And, and, and they're looking for the weak link. They're looking for who they're going to play. And they're going to split whenever possible, you know. Look like Axis Tui, I would say, right? And if they refuse and they want to drop out, engage the family. I don't think, you know, I think probably a lot of you do that, but I don't see that really happening like it used to happen where you would continue with a family, educate the family, and have them move them towards taking care of themselves. Get them to cope without enabling, but they got to know what enabling is. You got to teach them that. And be flexible. You know, sometimes in the, in the process of working with a family and and Johnny refuses to come to treatment, there's a new crisis, right? Well, I got the family prepared to pull the trigger to move that now, you know, but I've got them, I've got them in structure to the extent that I can. You may want to change to be more confrontive if there's a danger and you got to move quickly. So, you know, one size does not fit all. Sometimes you do nothing until the next crisis. There's going to be another crisis. It's chronic. There's going to be another crisis. They're saying, we've got we to do it now. We've got to do it now. Can we meet Monday? Can we meet Monday? Can we meet Monday? I'm saying, we've got a lot of time. 
you know, unless he's overdosing and this kind of thing, uh, you know, you got plenty of time to set the stage. You're going to be same old, same old here for a while, you know, unless, you know, we're talking about severe medical risk. You've got plenty of time and don't, you know, don't co-sign the anxiety and the fear and all that. You just kind of work with them. Lots of different choices. Lots of options. And you kind of keep it open. And you work with each family like they're a unique, a unique group of folks. And each one of them will get better because the family gets sober and, and, uh, and recovers together is, 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 is the ultimate goal, isn't it? So, that's me. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right.